and I have to get this thing open because I'm lost without it. But um, let me pray before we get into this today. Father, we thank you that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that you uh, want us here, you want us worshipful, you want us uh, in your presence, that you probably see us in a different light than we do then we view ourselves that you are enamored, Father. Your intimacy with us is probably something we haven't even touched on yet. We thank you, Father, that you are a God of love, but you are also a God of truth. And we ask that you would bring us into your presence in a greater way this morning, helping us understand who you are and who we are and taking us farther in our mission for you. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Open your Bibles, your pew Bibles, these, if you can, to page 515, uh, to Jeremiah chapter 1, and uh, hold your place there, because we're going to be kind of reading through that piecemeal, and I'd like you to follow through with that, uh, reading that with me when I get to it. But it seems that, like, in these difficult times right now, uh, many Christians are, are maybe falling away from the faith. I don't know why, maybe social pressure, maybe the fear of man, I don't know. But Or worse, some seem to be really reinterpreting the Scriptures, reinterpreting the Bible to sort of shoehorn in their own personal desires to be able to live how they want to live without conviction and things like that. And I would say that at best people are very deceived right now. A lot of people are very walking in a very... Uh, being very deceived, or at worst, they're, they've just become apostates. It's, it's just uh, the truth of the matter, so to speak. Uh, Alyssa Childers, in her book, Another Gospel, which we have a few copies back there, and you can take one if you want. Great book. Um, she says, in progressive Christianity, uh, she makes a distinction between progressive Christianity and historical Christianity. I would, like Alyssa, I would stick with historical Christianity, but in progressive Christianity, doubt has become a badge of honor to bask in rather than an obstacle to face and overcome, right? Did somebody grab me a bottle of water? Thanks. Amen. Um, But what she's saying basically is that understandable, usual, and, you know, it's okay to have doubt uh, has morphed into prideful unbelief where people really live, thank you, Kathleen, people really live as if God never existed um, anymore, right? Or, or has never existed or doesn't exist. Um, so what they've done is they've started to deconstruct Scripture uh, with impossible sort of intellectual gymnastics, uh, devastating their faith and devastating the faith of other people as well. So what we're finding right now is in large segments of Christianity that Scripture's ver- veracity is being constantly questioned, right? Although the Hebrew and the New Testament texts were regarded as Scripture uh, by the majority of Christians at the end of the first century. I mean, we've always agreed on these things. The councils that met in the fourth and fifth centuries were not there to sort of choose what was in the Bible necessarily. They were more there to confirm what the church already regarded as Scripture because some people were saying we want to add things to it. 
Within the New Testament itself, Paul quotes Luke's gospel, calling it Scripture. And then Peter refers to all of Paul's letters as Scripture in the New Testament. In the earliest creeds, we hear them always begin things by saying, according to the Scriptures. In other words, belief was inextricably linked to Scripture, right? Progressive Christianity, however, believes that the writers of the New Testament, or the writers of the Bible as a whole, uh, uh, wrote what they believed to be true about God in their time and place. Now listen to that. Somebody might say that to you, and you'd be like, oh, whatever. You've got to start to listen to these words from people, right? Believe to be true of God in their time and place, but that we moderns have progressed beyond that. In other words, we, we've progressed beyond the Scriptures, That's not what the Scriptures teach, by the way. It is not at all what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that this is God's Word conveyed through human personalities in the context of history, and there's a difference in us progressing in our understanding of Scripture as opposed to progressing beyond the Scriptures. Progressives like Brian McLaren, and I'm going to begin this year to name people because we need to name them. Brian McLaren, do not ever listen to the man. Don't read his books. Don't go to a talk. Don't listen to the guy. He is so far off base, it's crazy. But people like Brian McLaren say lofty things like, we have a higher and wiser view of God now. Listen to the the pride in that statement. We have a higher and wiser view, view of God now than Paul did or Peter. Right? Craziness. Let me just say that they open the door for people to pick and choose what they think is Scripture or think is truth from the Bible and just leave the rest. And, and, but let me, let, me, let me say very clearly, Christianity is clear, is extremely clear, and it is evidentially solid. You want to, ever want to talk to, somebody, talk to Chuck over there about the evidence behind Scripture? He, will t- he loves to talk about that. It's just one of his favorite subjects. In one of the earliest creeds in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, solid belief is clearly defined for the church. Liberal and conservative scholars alike believe that that passage was written within a few months to at least a few years of Christ's ascension. It is absolutely, totally irresponsible to put the scriptures under scrutiny when it is so solid evidentially, and it always has been. But some do, and it's done its damage. It really has. Former worship leader Michael Gunger recently wandered off the theological rants when he tweeted this. He said, Jesus was Christ, Buddha was Christ, Muhammad was Christ, Christ is the word of the universe seeing itself, you are Christ, we are the body of Christ. How silly! How silly and how foolishly damaging those words are from a prideful young man. Concerning America, one article says data indicates a stabilized increase in the number of those who no longer identify as religious at all. Social media is replete with verbal grenades just lobbed at uh, historic Christian conviction. We hear it all the time. The culture war is lost, and it's had its casualties, hasn't it? We know that. And the fight is hard. And it will be harder still for those of us 
who grasp at the corner of Jesus' robe for more grace and more mercy and more power. Most Christian defection from orthodoxy is due to fatigue of defending the faith. People are just tired. It's, it is an onslaught against Christian belief right now. Maybe it's the fear of man. Alyssa Childers tells a story of a friend of hers who chose to embrace a lifestyle that is contradictory to Christian conviction. You can use your imagination to come up with it, despite her long history of orthodoxy on the subject. And Alyssa asked her, well, would you say that you truly believe that this is God's direction for your life or God's will for your life, and, or, or are you just tired of fighting? And she said, I'm just tired of fighting. I'm just giving up. The door of desire, of personal choice, of pleasure has swung wide open and anything goes, it seems, for many churches. But will we hold on to the faith in the midst of opposition from without and even from within as it concerns our own personal desires? Will we submit ourselves to the Lord in all ways? That's the question. There are times in history when we must draw lines, and this is one of them. I know you don't like that language, but it is a time to draw clear boundaries and lines. Boundaries with others and for ourselves, as a matter of fact, but boundaries that must be defended in love and without compromise to truth, right? Because truth without love kills, love without truth lies, It does. So over the next five weeks, we're going to be asking questions such as, how can we remain faithful to God when so many people around us aren't? How can we share the gospel in the face of opposition? We're going to explore the life and the ministry of Jeremiah, whose ministry was characterized by opposition, by suffering, and by a message that his people really didn't want to hear because they had long since deviated from their missional call. What can we learn from his journey and the message that God gave to that rebellious people at that time of history? We're going to look at how Jeremiah displays the necessity of deep faith and engagement with a world that really needed that message at that time. And what we're going to find out today is that fulfilling our calling is not dependent on our strength and skill, but on God's power and presence with us. Let me say that twice, because that's my proposition to you today, is that fulfilling our calling is not dependent on our strength and skill, but it is dependent on God's power and presence within us. And that's a lesson we always have to learn over and over and over again. I'm sure you know of imposter, uh, imposter syndrome. That's sort of the fear of being found out, uh, being secretly inadequate at your job, being found out that you, you don't really have the, the, the skill and the, the, the whatever, t- you know, the capabilities that people think you did for your job. Uh, which just might just be insecurity on your part, but it may also be true. You might not be ready for your job, right? Um, but with, the, with that fear in mind, let's listen to this conversation between God and Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, 
I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. I knew you. I set you apart. I appointed you. Now the word knew there is is the most intimate of of, of words. It means it's it's used to describe the, the relationship between the relations between husband and wife. Use your imagination. Uh, it's also used in, in, for words of people in very, very deep, close personal relationship. Uh, the word set apart also describes a special purpose. It, 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 it's used for things like the priesthood. The priesthood is set apart. Uh, it's used for things like that are in the tabernacle or the temple, those holy items that are set apart for a special thing. It's used for the Sabbath, you know, like that day that is set apart for, to be holy before the Lord. And Jeremiah, we find, is set apart for a special purpose, right? He's a special guy. And that, that, thing, that, that thing about him is born from a deep intimacy with, with God to be a prophet to the nations. Hear that coming up over and over again in the Scriptures. We've been studying that stuff for a long time now, right? But it's just there all throughout the Scriptures. You know, it's fitting that we just ended this Desire Overflow series. Uh, this is the same idea overflow of God's presence from us in our calling to go and to reach the nations, to go and reach people with the message of Christ. It continues in verse 6. He says, Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. He obviously knows how to speak. He's speaking, right? But he, what he's, you know what he's saying. He's saying he's, he's ineloquent. He's, he's inexperienced. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't have big words, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm too young. Now, our series graphic that you've seen before is, uh, is a later, older version of Jeremiah uh, because his ministry lasted for, they think, over 41 years, right? And at the time of his calling, he, here in the beginning, he's probably in his late teens to early 20s at the most. So he is young. He is ineloquent. He is inexperienced. He has every reason to feel inadequate and insecure as, in, as he faces this task. But what if Jeremiah had succumbed to that insecurity and that fear and not you know, followed God's calling on his life? Where would we be today? Bruce Olson, if you ever want to read a good book, it's called Bruchko. He came to be known as Bruchko by the child. Yeah, you like the book? Yeah, it is a good book. Um, it's not the perfect, what, oh, I, I, I'll just, never mind, that's a, the whole other thing. But Bruce Olson was, he was, uh, he, you know, he felt the call of God to go and be a missionary to, um, in the jungles of Colombia, along the border of Venezuela and that, that area. He was alone at 19 years old when he decided to go. He got off the plane with only $70 in his pocket, and I think just the clothes on his back, basically. And he wanted to bring the gospel to a tribe called the Motalon, and uh, it was a violent, murderous tribe that never had any outside contact. They had actually wounded or killed over 500 oil company employees out in the jungle. They didn't want them around, so they, whenever they came around, they just kind of shot arrows at them. You know, and in his first encounter with them, uh, they shot him in the leg with a poison arrow, and then they drug him back to their, their village in order to kill him in front of the village. But the chief spared him, and they threw him in a hot hut. If I get the story correct, she can correct me. But they, they yeah, and he, he, like, he had this big swollen infected leg, and he laid in that hut, and they fed him worms and bananas for, like, days until he finally healed. Ugh. And he stayed with them, right? And after years of 
you know, continued disease and torture and misfortune and basically hard work, he finally saw this tribe come to Christ. And they all gave their lives to Jesus. What if Bruce Olson succumbed to insecurity? What if he said, oh, I don't have what it takes. I don't got what it takes. God answers Jeremiah's insecurity in verse 7. He says, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. I love how God just speaks. Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> right? It's like, a ch- it's like speaking to a child. Don't do that. Right? You must go to everyone I send you, you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Now, we've got to be honest. I would feel the same as Jeremiah, right? We would all feel that way. But unlike the truly skilled worker who thinks that they you know, are not, you know, people, he, people might find out that they're not really skilled, you know, the, the imposter syndrome. Jeremiah actually wasn't mistaken about his condition, right? This calling far exceeds his age and ability. It really does. But what we find is God does not coddle insecurity. He doesn't. God calls for courage, not fear. He doesn't say, Jeremiah, you're not too young. You, you, you can speak. Look, you're really good at it. You are so capable. You can do this. I believe in you, Jeremiah. He doesn't say that, does he? It would have been really encouraging to have God say that to you, but it would not have been true. And God never says what's not true. Instead, God directs him simply not to focus on his insecurities and his inadequacies and not to be afraid. That's all he's done. But how? The answer is found in verse 8. Simply he says, I am with you and will rescue you. Reminds you of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, doesn't it? See, God doesn't stroke our fears of insecurity with reassurances of our great strength and our great skill. Instead, he reminds us of his power and his presence in our lives. When we're called to go and to speak into a culture that is increasingly hostile to the, to the message of Christ, we should know that we are not up to the task, but he is. He is through us. My weekly preaching isn't something I take lightly. It's, it's not. Uh, you know, like Jeremiah, I am inadequate. And I feel it. I do. But ours isn't to create the message, is it? A pastor is not a chef like him. <laughs> a pastor is a waiter. Right? We serve it up. We're being given the word of God and the power of God's presence to share it effectively. It continues in verse 9. It says, Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. Listen to that. I have put my words in your mouth. See today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and to overthrow. Those are not popular words right now. Everything has to be kind and loving and sweet and you can't offend anybody, boo, boo, boo. You know, it's so silly. It's so silly. But God says, I have appointed you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, and to build and to plant. 
God gave Jeremiah three answers to his objections. Firstly, he stressed the authority under which Jeremiah would act, and that is God's authority. Second, you know, well, let me say more about that. He'd have no choice. He'd have no choice as to his audience or to his message. He's to go to everyone that God commands him to go to and say whatever God commands him to say. Jeremiah was simply to be a faithful messenger, a good waiter of the word of God, right? Now, if you had a waiter and they went away and they came back and brought you something you didn't order, but it was much better for you, you'd be upset with them. And that's what his people are going to be feeling, right? They want to hear certain things. And he's saying, nope, this is what God says. Part of his message is unwelcome, right? Building and planting is really nice, but uprooting and tearing down and destruction and overthrow, they're not nice words. Our task is sometimes one of deconstruction. Not deconstruction of the scriptures, though, but deconstruction of the thoughts in our society that are antithetical to God. That's why you have to be thinking, Christian. In issues that are actually detrimental to people, but they hold on to, which are so dear... We can't deny our calling to confront those things with the truth of God, with the truth of God's word. Scripture teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, for we are to, to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? We certainly aren't, except for God's power and presence in us, except for the power of the Word of God coming through us. Secondly, God says he, He'd protect Jeremiah since people would seek to harm him. Not going to be a popular guy. And thirdly, God showed him the source of his message, right? The Lord touched Jeremiah's mouth, this visible manifestation confirming the Lord would fill him up, fill him up with the words that he would speak. Jeremiah didn't need to worry what he was going to say. God would provide those words. And you and I have greater benefit today, don't we? We have less excuse. We are filled with the Spirit of God leading us into all truth, Scripture tells us. The Word of God is at our fingertips, always right there. We, We have all of it, right, that we need. Jesus' promise of presence is in the in the Great Commission, that he would always be with us till the very end of the age, we are amply prepared, not in our own strength and our own skill, but in the power and the presence of Christ in us. Jesus encourages us in Luke chapter 12. He says, when you are brought before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Same thing. And the same sobering message in chapter 21 of Luke, he says, you will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed by even parents and brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Not a hair on your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. Wow. 
none of us are that smart that we could uh, we could answer every question posed to us by by people around us right but we have what we need absolutely what we need to be effective and adequate in our calling of bringing the gospel to people Many times we try with our own strength and our own skill and our own words to argue people into the kingdom, but let me say that simply getting people to read the Scriptures is, has much greater power. Actually, the greatest of power and the only real power. One of the prisoners in our prison ministry recently said, um, after he had heard this verse uh, read to him, you know, in our study, he said, uh, I'm really realizing how powerful God's words are. I mean, isn't that cool? That's a great statement. G.K. Chesterton said, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us dragons exist, but because they tell us dragons can be beaten. Think about that. It's kind of true, right? <clears throat> even, even fiction can be, can be powerful to encourage someone's heart since it speaks to the human condition, doesn't it? Beating your dragons, right? But the living word of God in the pages of Scripture doesn't just have doesn't just teach us good lessons and encourage our hearts and make us feel better. It is powerful to the salvation of souls, like nothing else is. Nothing else can do that. As Romans 10:17 says, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Bruchko, Bruce Olson, won the motor loan to Christ not because he was so eloquent, not because he was so educated, not because he was even tenacious, and he was a very tenacious guy, but rather one day they saw him reading the Bible. And they equated the pages of his Bible to be banana leaves in an ancient prophecy that, uh, in their own history that said that a man, it even went to as far as to say a white man would come and show them God by reading words off of banana leaves. Is that not crazy? It was then that they began to hear the word of God spoken to them and conviction and conversion occurred. God is great. It had very little to do with Bruce Olson other than him being willing to show up. Jeremiah's calling had both recipient and message, or method. He was sent on mission with God's word, which would bring an end to what seemed so absolute. Listen to me here. That what seemed so absolute, and it would bring about what seemed to be the impossible. Things in our culture right now, which are antithetical God, seem so absolute. It just seems so, like nothing's going to change. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And, you know, they are too much for us. They are too much for us to overcome in our own strength. No amount of arguing is going to turn that Titanic, right? Right? Another great awakening to Christ won't happen in our culture, in our country, by just arguing politics on social media. It's a waste of time. It's a total waste of time. 
It'll be by the power of God's presence and word revealed in the witness of his people, the witness of his church. When we get back to what's really, truly our calling and what really should concern us. God's word will dismantle that which seems so absolute and is not glorifying to him and it will rebuild what seems so impossible That is his kingdom in its place. That will happen. In verses 11 through 16, the Lord gave Jeremiah two visions to help him see the nature of his calling and its effectiveness. And the first deals with the time of judgment and the second with the direction and nature of it. In in verse 11, it says, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. And the Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Listen to that. I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. You know, we've studied for, you know, over this whole past year, pretty much, God's calling of his people from cover to cover in the Bible. If you haven't been here, we have, just trust me. But God will not let up on that calling. That is our calling. That is our mission right? The question is, will we engage in his kingdom building endeavor, uh, you know, drawing power from his promised presence in our lives, or are we going to allow the difficulties and the fatigue to dishearten us and make us give up? The Hebrew word for almond tree used here is from the word to watch or to wake, right? So the almond tree was named the awake tree, so to speak, because in Palestine, it's, it's, it's the first tree in the year to bud and to bear fruit. Bloom sort of precedes leaf on this tree, and, and it, it blossoms in late January. God's using that imagery right here to say that he is awake and he is watching to see that his word, word is fulfilled for sure. I love that thought, that God is awake and he's watching. Now in second, the second vision in verse 13, he says, The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting towards us from the north. The Lord said to me, From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who lived in the land. I am about to summon all the people of the, peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. In other words, they're going to come and take over, Right? And they will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. And I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness and forsaking me in burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. I hope you've re- you, you remember what we've studied in recent past. And that is, if you don't do Acts 1.8, you get Acts 8.1. Acts 1.8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I hope you remember that sermon, you know, probably a few months back. But if you don't do Acts 1-8, you get Acts 8-1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered 
throughout Judea and Samaria because God has always been calling us to be about the mission of scattering his word to the people. And when we refuse to do it, he scatters us. He takes us and he puts us out there. And this is what God is to, to, directs Jeremiah to tell his people, right? They had forsaken God's calling to be a light to the nations. They had forsaken that calling. Now there's going to be a reckoning as it references the coming invasion of Babylon and her allies. Babylon was actually located to the east, but the invading armies followed the trade routes along the Euphrates River down to Judah. So those armies actually did approach from the north. And that is a prophecy that was fulfilled in Jeremiah chapter 39, verses 2 and 3. Could the church in America expect the same as it turns away from the Lord? God may possibly wake us up in similar ways. Maybe God wants us to be uncomfortable to get back to what is truly important. I don't know. I'm not trying to be prophetic. I'm just asking a question. Then God directs him further. He says, get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand up against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land, and they will fight against you. But, you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Those are tremendous words. Some athletes have sort of bizarre pregame rituals. During the 1998 World Cup, the French team believed that their winning streak was tied to one player kissing the bald head of another player before each game. <laughs> some teams like don't wear certain colors they do certain things you know whatever but jeremiah didn't have anything like that he had to prepare very differently didn't he he is commanded to get himself ready for the challenges that he'll face and to do so god says do not be terrified by them or i will terrify you before them there is no better solution to the fear of man, to our insecurities, to our cowardice, than a healthy fear of God. Right? It puts a steel rod up your spine. If we, if we don't trust that God is all-powerful and has called us to proclaim truth and will ultimately rescue us from anything that we face, we will always be swayed by fear. Always. My wife reminds me of this all the time, that we need to get back to this healthy fear and respect of the Lord. God makes it clear to fear and to recognize Him as the ultimate source of power and strength. It is understanding God's sovereignty. He doesn't promise Jeremiah that they're going to listen, that it's going to be easy, that he's going to be successful as we would expect. You know, there's a lot of pressure on pastors and church leaders to have a church that's just humming and filled and, you know, popping and all that stuff. What have we really put ourselves to? Rather, Jeremiah is going to have incredible opposition, right? 
Not exactly a dream, dream job description. One career website uh, compiled a list of the worst jobs based on variable, various factors or whatever, assembly workers and bank tellers and short order cooks and reporters even. And none of these jobs would ever advertise themselves as negative, right, in their job descriptions. But God openly admits to Jeremiah that his job's going to suck, if I can use that word in church. Just going to suck. The difficulty is the reason the promise, I am with you and will rescue you, is so important. So important. And it's reminiscent of Moses' calling in Exodus chapter 3 where, where he says to God, Who am I? Who am I? What am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israel of, uh, Israelites out of Egypt? You remember that story, right? Remember that God did also did not affirm Moses' inadequacy, right? He didn't, he didn't go there. He, he actually ignores the question and he responds, I'll be with you. Same thing he says to Jeremiah. So like Moses, Jeremiah is repeatedly to tell his people things that they don't want to hear. But both of these men responded sort of with claims of inadequacy. But God insists they, de- they don't need the skills that they think they do because God is enough. He is enough. Not me, not you. Not anyone, God is enough. Same is true of us, right? Sometimes we want people to respond to our feelings of inadequacy by affirming us and telling us how gifted and how able we are. Rather, we need to be reminded of God's call and His power and His presence on our lives. By the way, God knew you too before you were ever in the womb. That's how intimate He is with you. That's how much He loves you. He has also empowered you with the Spirit. If you have come into Christ, if you have given your life to Jesus, then you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. He's empowered you. And He's called you and me to the same task, to speak His Word to the nations, which are so much in need of it right now. So let us not be afraid all i can say to you right everybody some some people criticize me because i never have practical application well here's your practical application don't be afraid serve up the word of god to the world around you with boldness and with clarity even in the face of opposition knowing that god is at work even when it seems like god is not at work because he is because we are called to speak into a culture that is increasingly hostile to God's message. Even in all our strength and skill, we are not up to the task. But God's power and presence is within us. Amen? Amen. You're all like, oh, amen. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are, your power and your presence is with us. I don't know how to say that more strongly. I don't I, I can't I can't I, I can't summon the words. I don't have the skill and ability to convince anybody of that fact. I can't say it so eloquently that every single person in this room will just be convicted of it. Wow, Jason, that was so nice. I don't have that power. So we ask your Holy Spirit, move, blow in us. Move in us. 
Let us understand how close you are here and what great purpose you have placed on our lives and how you are with us and will rescue us and take us farther no matter what. We thank you, Lord Jesus. You are King of kings and Lord of lords over all this, over everything. And even when it doesn't seem like you are working, we know and we trust that you are working. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Prayer person.